Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we always have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you're in fellowship. Make sure that uh, you're ready to concentrate, focus on the study of God's word. And you're going to need to concentrate tonight, I think. So just be warned. So let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's a tremendous privilege to be here tonight, to be able to study your word, to have our own copy of your word in our laps where we can read all 66 books of the Bible in our own language and be able to study these things in freedom. And Father, we're thankful that we have freedom in this nation where we can do this, and we pray that you will continue to preserve that freedom against those who are uh, assaulting it both within our nation and from outside. Father, we pray for us that we might have an attitude of submission to your word, recognizing that not all things that we cover, not all things that we study are easy to understand, not all things that are revealed in your word are understood the first time or the 20th time or even the 100th time we go through them. But in that process, God the Holy Spirit takes these things and helps us to put everything together in terms of our understanding of who you are, what you've done for us in salvation, and what your plan is for our life. Now, Father, as we focus on your word tonight, challenge us with the things we study. We pray that we will be uh, go away with a greater understanding of who you are and how you work in history and in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings 11, which is the turning point, really, in the narrative of kings, remember First and Second Kings were originally written as one uh, work, not two works, First and Second Kings. And it's in this chapter that we move from the spiritual ascendancy of Israel under Solomon as the king who uh, took them to their greatest extent physically in terms of their kingdom, but also led them to the greatest heights of divine blessing because of his orientation to God's grace, his humility, his orientation to doctrine. But then when he got into his later years, he failed. And that ought to be a reminder to every one of us that there's no such thing as reaching a point where we can relax or retire in our spiritual life or in the Christian life, that there's always... Times to, a time to learn, to study, to apply, all the way until the Lord takes us home. So he became complacent, as we've seen the last few weeks. He began to focus on his, perhaps he began to focus on his place in history. What we see and what he did is not so much 
uh, sin that is related to sexual sin and sexual lust, which is, I would think, what how most people handle this with his 700 wives and 300 concubines, but that those wives primarily, the ones that are identified, are those that are in the aristocracy and royal families of the nations that surrounded Israel. And these marriages were not marriages based on physical lust or the desire uh, for sexual pleasure, but they were designed to uh, improve the national security of a people whose security should have rested solely in God. And so we studied this last time and saw how as he uh, took these wives from the surrounding countries, from Moab and Ammon and from Egypt, and from Syria that he also relaxed his guard with relation to their religious beliefs. And slowly he began to compromise. He failed the test of peer pressure. That was part of the test within his prosperity. And so he allowed his thinking to be influenced by the multicultural religious environment that was established in his harem. And the term harem that we use today comes out of an Arabic and Hebrew word, harem, which means to set apart or to restrict in some way. And it's the same word that was used for holy war in uh, Joshua. And it has the idea of setting something aside for, for God, setting it under the ban, where it is in an isolated, uh, restricted environment. And so he develops this this, uh, uh, harem, which is patterned after the other kings in the nations around him. And so Israel is getting exactly what they had initially asked for back in 1 Samuel chapter 7. They wanted to have a king like everyone else. And God warned them against that and prohibited certain things to be done by the king, part of one of which was multiplying horses to himself, and that really was related to the military and building a strong military because he would put his focus on his own military power as his source of security rather than God. They didn't need to have military training and military power to get out of Egypt. They didn't need to have military training and military power in order to conquer the Canaanites. And they did not need to have military training and military power in order to preserve their integrity as a nation and to preserve their security. What they needed to do, according to the Mosaic Law, was to focus their attention on God, to worship him completely, to dedicate all of their thinking to God and focus on him, worship him, obey him consistently throughout the entire uh, Israelite society. And the result of that would be divine protection and divine security. But Solomon failed. He put his focus on the circumstances of life, the details of life. His wives turned his heart uh, after other gods. We read in verse 4, And his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. Now, this is one of those verses that uses a key word three times, and that's the word heart. And the word heart in the in the Scripture is a word that can have several shades of meaning. The 
central idea of heart is that which is at the very center of something or at the core of something. It is not necessarily related to uh, the organ in our body that pumps and circulates blood. That's not the point of the analogy. The point of the analogy is what's at the heart of something. So it, in some passages, heart is uh, a synonym for the soul, and it incorporates all of the dimensions of our soul. In numerous passages, by far the majority of passages, heart has the uh, connotation of the thinking part of the soul the thinking part of the soul. In some passages, it has the idea of volition. His wives turned his heart. That relates to a volitional aspect as well as the thinking aspect. Heart is sometimes used for emotion, but only in a few passages is it used in that sense. Primarily has to do with either the soul, the person, the, the, their core thinking, or it has to do with just, just thought alone. So he turns his heart after these other gods, his focus, his attention, and in contrast to the heart of his father David, that's an important contrast to pick up as we go through this chapter because of his failure to follow in David's footsteps with a focus, a devotion, a faithfulness to God. He is not going to receive the blessing that would have been his if he had been obedient to God. And we studied that last time as we looked at the promise at the beginning of his reign. God appeared to Solomon, as God points out to him in verse 9 and 10. God appeared to Solomon twice. The first time, he offered him whatever he wished. And because he desired wisdom more than power, more than military might, more than riches, more than any other detail in life, he wanted Wisdom, which is the ability to uh, apply doctrine to the issues of life in a skillful manner. God said, I will give you all of these other things more than any other king in all of all the world. And so Solomon had more wealth, more power than any other king. He was the most powerful king in his era up to this point. We haven't heard anything historically in the Bible about Egypt since the Israelites came out and God destroyed the Egyptian society, Egyptian culture, and Egyptian military. It is just completely wiped out. We don't hear of them at all until Solomon marries Pharaoh's daughter uh, earlier in 1 Kings. And so we see Egypt beginning to come back on the scene as a military power seeking alliances with the nations around him. And Solomon is uh, prone to seek his security from places other than God, just as, as we are. So he fails to maintain his devotion to God. And God promised him in that first appearance that if, conditional promise, unlike the Davidic covenant, which was unconditional, that the Messiah would come through the descendants of David, God told Solomon that if he was obedient, if he remained steadfast to the Lord and faithful to the Lord, then that line of blessing would indeed go through Solomon. But And then again, the second time, as we studied in Second uh, Chronicles 7 and First uh, uh, Kings chapter, uh, chapter 9, God told Solomon that if 
if he would be continue to be faithful, he would still be blessed and be in the line of the of the Davidic promise. But that was a conditional promise to Solomon. And Solomon fails, and in his divine discipline, God is going to punish him by taking that that special blessing away from him because of his apostasy and because of the fact that he brought idolatry into the the bloodstream, as it were, of the people in the southern kingdom. And this sets a precedent and becomes a major problem. So it's not just personal sin on the part of Solomon. It is the sins related to his leadership as the Davidic king who is ruling over the people, and he leads them in rebellion, as it were, against God, because according to the Mosaic law, God is their king. It's a theocratic kingdom. God is the, is the ruler of the nation. And if they worship other gods, this is a, an act of tyranny against God. It is an act of betrayal against the God of the Mosaic covenant. And uh, that relates to everything that, uh, that Solomon is doing. When he establishes these altars for the worship of these idols, as I pointed out last time, these are gods related to each of these individual nations. And so there is a political element here of betrayal of God, betrayal of the nation, betrayal of the Mosaic law, violation of the Mosaic law, and he is indeed worthy of the death penalty because of what he has done in leading the people into idolatry. But God in his grace doesn't give him or punish him with the fullest extent of the law as he could for the sake of David, and that is implied to be also for the sake of God's own integrity because of what God had promised David in the Davidic covenant. And we'll get into that. So last time and the time before, we focused on Solomon's sin, and the conclusion is in verse 6, Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. And I pointed out, and we'll see it again and again as we go through Kings, is that the concept of evil is contextually defined as idolatry, leading people to worship a deity other than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And again and again we will see these uh, statements where so-and-so, the king of the northern kingdom, followed in the pattern of Jeroboam, the sin of Nebat, and did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the sin of Jeroboam is the sin of idolatry. So the concept of evil isn't some um, uh, abstract, independent concept that could apply to racism or genocide or any of the terrorism or any of the ways in which modern man may want to use and define the word evil. It is fundamentally the worship of anything other than God as God. So Solomon does evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Now, what does that mean to fully follow the Lord? The idea is not that he is completely obedient or perfect or that he never made mistakes or that he never sinned because we know that's exactly what David did. He sinned uh, in incredible ways. He sinned very publicly 
And there were many, many times that he uh, sinned quite egregiously, the sin with Bathsheba, the attempt to cover it up, the conspiracy that took the life of her husband Uriah. All of these things indicate that David was a sinner. There, was, there wasn't anything perfect about him. And yet his heart, his focus of his thinking, his volition was positive and never shifted to God. He was loyal to God, even though he uh, sinned uh, many different times. And that's the issue. Is in, and the same issue is true for our own lives, that the way God evaluates us in ter- is in terms of our heart focus, our positive volition, our dedication to him. It's not that uh, we get away with sin or that sin in our life is not significant, but that's not the issue. The issue fundamentally is that orientation, that devotion, that loyalty to God, and God will take care of the other, the other issues. And then we see a, the reaction or the response, rather, of God in verse 9. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Notice how the writer of Scripture, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, emphasizes the significance of that twofold appearance of God to um, to Solomon. Many people think that if they just had a glimpse of God or if they had just seen if they had just seen Jesus, then they would have a stronger faith and they would be a better Christian and they would not have doubts. And speaking of Jesus, I was reminded today, got an email from a member of the congregation who had taken their kids up to Camp Penile last week and they went up to pick them up over the weekend. And they were driving through Marble Falls and there was a church in town that uh, that had a sign, one of those typical church signs. There's got to be a book somewhere that has, you know, catchy slogans to put on church signs. They didn't t- sell that at the Dallas Seminary bookstore, so I never got one, never knew what to put on a sign. But the sign said, come listen to Jesus this weekend. And so the, I think he's about 10 years old, the 10 or 11-year-old son turned to his dad and said, you know, Pastor Dean's got to get a better list of guest speakers, this church gets Jesus. (laughs) So, Solomon, his heart is turned away from the Lord. He is on negative volition. Twice God has appeared to him, so he has an incredible amount of empirical evidence of who God is and what he can do for him. He has been blessed beyond almost any other human being. And yet, despite the physical blessing, despite the physical appearance by God, he turns and rejects God. And that is a tremendous lesson for any of us because we just think that if there's something else there that somehow our relationship with God it would be more dynamic, more consistent, more uh, we would be more faithful. And the issue isn't that empirical reality. It is trusting in God's word. And as I pointed out last time, it's the same principle that Jesus uh, reiterates when he tells the story of Lazarus 
and the rich man. Lazarus, the beggar who sat outside the rich man's gate, and the rich man who uh, ignored him. They both die. Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom. Lazarus was a believer. Uh, So Lazarus goes to a place, uh, the place of paradise, and the rich man went to torments. And as he's there in torments, he begs Abraham to let Lazarus be raised from the dead. To go, This isn't the same Lazarus as in John 11. But for Lazarus to be raised from the dead so that he can go back to his brothers and tell them uh, about God, tell them how important it is and what the consequences are if they reject God. And Abraham says that if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe somebody who's raised from the dead. The issue is the word of God. And if the word of God is available, and it is to everyone in the church age, then it is sufficient. And we don't need signs and wonders and miracles and all these other things, and they don't actually actually work. Now, as we get into this passage, as it sets us up for what will uh, take the rest of the chapter, sets us up for God's divine discipline and his judgment on Solomon. And so God is going to outline what he is going to do to Solomon in the rest of this paragraph. And then starting in verse 14, he is going to raise up external enemies to Israel that will begin to cause problems and then internal problems with the rebellion of Jeroboam. But before we get there, we have this initial phrase that I want to spend a little time with because of a couple of questions that have come up lately and discussion, and I just was looking at this today, and because of the verb that was used here, it uh, drove me into greater investigation. So the first phrase that we have is, now the Lord was angry with Solomon. What does that mean that the Lord is angry? Now, this is a good study because it fits with the same general concept we uh, we've seen, we saw it this last Sunday morning, we've seen it in Revelation before, and that is the usage of that terminology of divine wrath in the end times in the book of Revelation. And we looked at this, looking at the sixth seal in Revelation 6 with the wrath of the Lamb. And in fact, we saw that same terminology used with the wrath of God and the wrath of his Son in uh Psalm 2, in the last verse of Psalm 2 and Psalm 2.12, this last Sunday morning. So I want to stop and just address this a little bit because it will give us, I think, a little better understanding of who God is and how he communicates to us. The verb that is used here is the Hebrew verb anaf, and that final P is actually a soft P. It's pronounced like a PH. And it means to be angry, and uh, it's an intensified form in the hithpile stem, but it's built off of a noun, af. And you can hear it when I say anaf, you can hear that last syllable, af, is the noun, af, which means nose, nostrils, in some places face, and it is a used in an idiom, or actually a figure of speech or metaphor for anger. And you run into this in the Hebrew language and to some degree in Greek as well, where certain things that we describe as emotions 
are stated in terms of these body parts, physical, the, the physical manifestation. Somebody gets, gets really mad, their nostrils flare, and their face turns red, and, and um, they're, they're getting ready to blow their stack. Or if somebody is uh, very concerned about something, often this is felt in their, uh, in their bowels, in their stomach, uh, and so you have other, different words for what we what we call emotions today are identified with different different body parts. And as we look at this, it raises a question that has been an issue for I think in among conservative Christians, and there's some disagreement among a lot of different theologians over the whole issue of God and emotion. So I started doing a lot of research on this the last couple of days. I've done a lot on this in the past, and it's a it's a fascinating subject, and it's one that is uh, directly related to many, many different doctrines. In fact, when you start pulling at this thread, if you go in the wrong direction in your thinking, then it... That that one thread is attached to a half a dozen other threads that start unraveling all kinds of doctrines in Scripture, and so it's an important thing to think through. But it's one that I never heard addressed the entire time I was in seminary, either in master's program or in my uh, doctoral work. And in fact, the technical uh, theological term that was developed for this in the early church is the term impassibility. And so that's a term we're going to have to become a little bit familiar with, but it's a term that has come under tremendous debate over the last 15 to 20 years because of the rise of a heretical teaching within evangelicalism known as the openness of God theology or open theology. And so I'll define all these terms for you, but I'm just trying to sort of front load this a little bit with why this is really significant to think about these things and to try to understand them because you won't run into one theologian, one systematic theology out of 20 that even addresses the issue or uses the term. Trust me, you can search on a variety of terms and they're, they're ignored. And you also have a trend today where, as I was taught when I was in Dallas Seminary, as a student going through uh, exegesis classes in Hebrew, especially in the Old Testament, I was taught that there's no such thing as an anthropopathism. And we studied that before, and we'll look at the definition in just a minute, and that this just didn't exist at all and that that was wrong. And there are a number of theologians who take that. It, once you start going in certain directions, it's kind of a slippery slope. And it, it amazes me as I read through a number of articles in the last couple of days and some systematic theologies that did discuss this, that you, you run into really sharp men, brilliant men, who are really good thinkers who I think fail to answer certain things or they just assume something without foundation. And so I want to take a little time tonight and just look at this. The basic thing we have to remember is what God says to Isaiah in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, one of the, one of the doctrines that you get into in this kind of a study is how do, how do creatures know the creator? How do we come to learn about an infinite, eternal, personal God? What kind of knowledge do we have of God? And over the course of time, people have suggested that our knowledge of God is based on one of three things. And the only place I was ever taught anything related to this was one apologetics class at Dallas Seminary, and I got more of it in a, in a, a philosophy course uh, when I was working on my master's at the University of St. Thomas. Knowledge of God is thought to be either equivocal, analogical, or univocal. Now, let's just think about these terms. Univocal, unit, meaning one. That would have the idea that our knowledge of God is, is identical with his. It's one-to-one. Analogical means there are points of similarity, but also points of, of great difference. But these points of similarity allow God to utilize analogies to give us some idea of what this infinite creator is like, even though what he is like is far beyond anything we can possibly relate to. We, we can understand because he is infinite. And then equivocal is the idea that, that we don't really know God at all. He's just so other that we don't know him. So those are the three terms. And what we see in, in the scriptures is this idea that of analogy, that God uses various analogies in order to explain who he is. So our knowledge of God is analogical, and philosophers break that down in different kinds of analogies, and I'm certainly not going to uh, do that because I'll put half of you to sleep, and I don't want to dig a post hole on this particular doctrine. I just want to kind of hit a few of the high points and things that we need to to think about a little bit. And the more I get into this, and I was reading some articles today, I become very depressed at the poverty of government education in 20th century America because there's so much that you, you get into reading historically and you realize you never heard any of this in any history class all the way up through state university. And those professors at PhD never, never heard any of it either. And we just are poorly educated on so many things, and we think we know more than we do. And we really don't. You go back and you read the Puritans, and you read the uh, scholars, the theologians of the early 19th century. Many of these men knew more about history and grammar and Greek and Latin and Hebrew when they were 14 years old getting ready to go to university than THM and THD students do when they get out of seminary today. And they just started with so much. And when you start with so much, then you can really go somewhere. And I'm thankful that God really provided me with a great foundation in the church where I grew up and in in the studies that I had, uh, even in college, that were extracurricular that I did in, in, in the Word, that when I started seminary, I remember sitting in my first year theology class, and I had a retired naval lieutenant commander sitting next to me, 
And he heard the word superlapsarian, and his brain turned inside out, and he looked at me and turned three shades of green. And then he heard omnipresence and omniscient. He had never heard any of this. He had, because these terms are not words that are used in churches and in pulpits. And this was in the 70s. They're, they weren't used then. They're not used now. And so he didn't have the foundation. And today, it's to talk to Ike, it's a hundred times worse today. Uh, kids barely even know what the, go- what the word gospel means when they start similar, much less what it really is. And it's, a, it's sad because they're the products of churches that don't teach anymore. And so we think that somehow Bible college, seminary are designed to uh, replace the local church. And you get this attitude from students. I, I saw this at College of Biblical Studies. Well, I'm going to go to church because I have great worship there, but I'm going to go to the College of Biblical Studies because that's where I'll learn the Bible. Well, wait a minute. You're supposed to learn the Bible in your local church. So there are things that we find in the, in the, in the Scripture and in understanding God where men in past generations have written profound things that are gathering dust in libraries, but they've worked through most of these things before. Now, when we look at this passage, the one thing that we should realize is that as a creature, we have a certain understanding of things within a creaturely frame of reference. But God is totally other. We've gone over this many, many times. It's fundamental to, to Christ, biblical Christianity is the creator-creature distinction. And so when we get on the other side, uh, beyond our finite frame of reference from empiricism, rationalism, and mysticism into the realm of God's true existence in heaven, there is little that we can truly comprehend because of our finiteness. But God has revealed himself to, to us in ways so that we can know him, and what we know about him we can know truly. But we will never, even uh, uh, as the Amazing Grace says, the song Amazing Grace says, when we've been there 10,000 years, you'll still be trying to figure out God. And we'll never get there. There, is, there are always going to be things about him that we're going to understand. And so we have to be careful as we set up this analogy and as Scripture sets up analogies between the finite realm on the one hand and the infinite realm of the Creator on the other hand, that what is on our side of the divide is merely uh, an analogy, it's merely a comparison, and God is saying, as it were, that if if you could grasp me, grasp what I, what's going on with me and my character and my attributes, then what I'm telling you just gives you a little glimpse within your frame of reference of what's happening, of what I am like. It's not that we don't know him, but we don't know him and we can't understand him exhaustively and so we ought to go away from studies like this, not scratching our head and saying, well, we can't know God, so it's, we're lost in some kind of mire of agnosticism, but just in awe that this God that the Bible reveals to us is a God who seeks our relationship, our fellowship, that he has created us for a purpose, and part of that purpose is to be 
in, in relationship with him. So, as we think about this whole concept, we look at these words that, like, that we have with the verb for anger, and one place that we find it is in the verse I touched on Sunday morning, Psalm 2.12, do homage to the Son that he not become angry, there's the word, not become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Now, this, I recognize, is referencing the future from the time that it was written in Psalm 2 to the time after the incarnation in the hypostatic union. But the the verb is still here, and the verb that is related here is that verb related to becoming angry, and literally the idea is related to the noun having the nose burn. First time I ever, and I'm trying to give little anecdotes and help you think through how I thought through this. First time I got hit with this, I was reading through a passage in Exodus, and uh, and in the passage where Moses is up on Mount Sinai and the Israelites are down below and they're impatient. He's been up there for 40 days while God's giving him the law. And Aaron is duped into and pressured into building the golden calf. And they're going to identify the golden calf as as the God who brought them out of Egypt. And God becomes angry. And you have the, this, you don't have this verb there. What you have is the verb for burn and the noun nose. And literally it says God's nose burn. And I looked at that and I'd understood that idiom from when I was a second year Hebrew student. And I read an article written by a friend of mine on the emotion of God, and he didn't address that. In fact, he said something related to that passage where he said, see, this passage shows that God has genuine emotion. It's not a figure of speech. That's really the issue here, is when it says God is angry, God is jealous, is this a literal statement or is it a figure of speech? That's the bottom line. So... Uh, he said this is a literal statement. These statements show that God has these emotions. So I called him up and I said, I'm not sure you, you were ready to write this, put this article out yet. It's kind of half-baked. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you said that uh, this passage in Exodus clearly shows that this is a literal statement of God's anger. And it's not a figure of speech. I said, have you looked at the Hebrew? This is another Old Testament major from Dallas Seminary. I said, did you look at the Hebrew? The Hebrew says his nose burned. That's a figure of speech known as an anthropomorphism. It's attributing to God a physical aspect of, of the human body that God doesn't actually possess. And it's using that anthropomorphic statement that his nose burned to express something about emotion, but it's a figure of speech. So you can't say that these statements that God is jealous, God is is angry, and other similar passages, you can't say that's not a figure of speech because the underlying Hebrew is a figure of speech. Even in the Greek, when you talk about the mercy of God, it's the Greek word spontnoi, and spontnoi are your bowels. These, These... 
words that are, are, are loaded with, uh, that we use for emotion in the Greek and Hebrew are based on anthropomorphic figures. And you just don't find anybody wrestling with that. This afternoon I called up my friend Tommy Ice as I was talking through this, thinking through this, and he hadn't thought it, thought it through very much. He made a good point. He said, you know, when most of us approach this issue, we're thinking in terms of our own frame of reference. And it just seems to us that if we're in the image of God, then there must be something in our makeup that corresponds to something in God's makeup. But he said, you're making some really interesting points I haven't studied through yet. I said, yeah, I don't know. This is my frustration. I'm trying to figure this out. And nobody out there seems to want to address some of these issues. And I ran across a good article today by a theologian named Robert Duncan Culver, who's retired from Wheaton, and wrote an article for ETS back in the, that's the Evangelical Theological Society, back in the 90s. And I really liked what he said. He traced this whole doctrine of impassibility all the way down through the history of the church age. And what was fascinating, was I didn't like it because he agreed with me. That wasn't why I liked it. Um, and I don't know that he, I didn't have time to read the whole thing. It's an extremely long article. But what I liked was that he wasn't assuming anything as opposed to almost everything else I read on the subject where they were assuming something. See, God has compassion, so that must mean he has emotion. Well, wait a minute. You haven't dealt with the underlying Greek or Hebrew words on compassion. You're just assuming this, with, that it's not a figure of speech, without demonstrating each little plank. It's like building a legal case. So there are several things we have to be careful of, though, as we get into this. First of all, we have several concerns that we all bring to this. Some people, because we live in a highly emotional culture that has glorified emotion since the end of the uh, 1700s, those of you who sat through the History of Doctrine course, you remember that there was a theologian who was a student of, of um, uh, Immanuel Kant's in Germany by the name of Friedrich Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher is the father of modern liberalism, and Schleiermacher said the way we really know God is through feeling. And he basically deifies human emotion as the way you know about God in some sort of uh, mystical encounter. You get more and more of an emphasis on emotion as you go through the 19th century, and of course it becomes purely secularized uh, with the influence of Freud. And so many people today think that somehow the absence of, if you, if you take a position which was the, according to Culver, it was the universal position among theists and non-theists alike up till after the Reformation, that any God who was God would have to be impassable, that is, not have emotion. Then you get into various terms like defining emotion, and they break, it would break it down the Middle Ages into passions and other things, and that gets way beyond what I want to do. But what we're, we, the questions we ask are, does the absence of divine emotion mean that God can't relate to us? No, it can't. Whatever we see in Scripture is that God is a God who understands man, understands man's plight, that God is doing what he needs to to solve man's problem, and he can enter into, and he created man for the purpose of entering into deep personal relationship. What happens, I think, and I, I wish I had the time just to go study this and write a doctoral dissertation, is that 
we have front-loaded concepts of personality with emotion. I read one very astute theologian who made some interesting observations on this, firmly uh, espoused the impassibility of God, and uh, concluded his, um, his, his study by pointing out that, that uh, the feel, God has feelings, but they're immutable. If they're immutable feelings, then that kind of, like an oxymoron, because feelings, by definition, change and are variable. And that's part of the problem is we wrestle deeply with vocabulary here because as we st- look at this whole issue, we, we bump up against that brick wall of the incomprehensibility of God. And sometimes we just can't unscrew the inscrutable. We have to say there's something on the other side of that equation Human vocabulary isn't adequate to explain what's on the other side of the analogy. But there's something that, is, that human emotion is analogous to in God. But if you understand the terms feeling and emotion, you understand those can't be the terms we use. The, the word emotion is a word that comes from the Latin uh, movere, which means to move. And it implies that something internal within the makeup of a person is is moved by an external event. Well, that can't happen with God because now you've got problems with immutability. And, 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 and historically, that's been recognized. But modern theologians have come along and say, well, that's just not a valid argument. And that's come out of, to a large degree, the open theology camp, but men like Norm Geisler have reaffirmed that uh, that position as well as a, a number of others who are standing in the gap against the um, uh, open theology movement. So we also have a question, does the absence of divine emotion mean that God can't relate or understand human suffering? What, what do we mean when we say God has compassion? How are we going to define these terms? And see, this is important because all through Scripture we have these, these terms about God's compassion, his love for us, his care for us, and we have to understand what these concepts relate to. Another concern we have is that we ask, why can we not take all these terms, love, anger, jealousy, hate, wrath, as referring to something rather than simply figures of speech. And somehow when people say, well, that's a figure of speech, the idea is that it doesn't really apply to anything. Let me show you something about what I mean. Um, before we go there, I have one other verse I skipped over. Psalm 79.5, the psalmist says, How long, O Lord, will you be angry, and will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? And if you notice in the parallelism, jealousy is parallel to anger. And so that's why I'm saying all of these terms, jealousy, anger, wrath, all have to be treated the same way. Now, i got a quote here. This is from a very well-known theologian that I highly recommend for many different ways. He's one of the um, really profound thinkers. I think he's dead now, Carl F.H. Henry. And he writes regarding this issue, God's agape is comprehended in voluntary relationships that stem from his creative and compassionate personality. And I note, that's my bracket comment there, he assumes the meaning of compassion and he doesn't 
explain it or deal with where it comes from scripturally. That's that's, and I'm I'm pointing that out because hopefully that'll help some of you learn how to think a little more critically when you read things. Uh, he's just assuming he has a compassionate personality. He hasn't explained what that means or how it relates to the biblical words for compassion. He goes on to say, as represented in the Bible, God's love presupposes the exclusive voluntary initiative of the sovereign divine being whom no external power can manipulate. Well, that's that's a good, good statement that whatever he's basically saying there that whatever is within the attributes of God are not being impacted by that which is outside. And that's what impassibility means. Then he ties in Schleiermacher here in a different way than I did, but he's thinking the same way. Schleiermacher's effort to explain theological representations of divine grace as merely the symbolic language of preaching and poetry distorts what the Bible insistently affirms, namely that God freely engages in compassionate and merciful acts. He then goes to a well-known Baptist theologian from the late 19th century, Augustus H. Strong, observes that while God's holiness is invariable, his mercy is optional. See, Henry's going to end up a little more on the side that of, of God's passable to some degree, but he's interacting with Strong, who is saying, no, he's not, not at all. There's no emotion in God. There's no passability in God. Henry says, compassionate response is not induced in God by the distress of creatures as if they were able to effect a change in the nature of an otherwise uncompassionate being. Well, see, there he's, he's trying to explain impassibility, that, that the inner nature of God is not affected by what's outside. If it is, God's mutable. So he's, he's, he's wrestling with how to explain this. He says, uh, rather, response is grounded in the living God's essential nature, that is, in his will, his voluntary disposition. Whatever Christian theology means by the impassibility of God, it does not mean that God's love, compassion, and mercy are mere figures of speech. Now, that's that's the statement. Because his assumption is that to say it's a figure of speech means that there's really nothing on the other side of the analogy. You just said we have an analogy, but it's just a figure of speech. It doesn't really refer to anything. And the point I'm making is for the analogy to work, there's something on the divine side that's what's on the human side is analogous to. We just can't comprehend it. And it does, and it's much more extensive than, and very different from what words like emotion and feeling, feelings are very physical. Uh, related term. You read an, uh, anything on emotion, one of the things that's interesting about human beings is how our emotions are enacted by things we see, things we smell. How many times have you been somewhere, all of a sudden you smell something and it takes you to someplace else you've been in life instantly and you have an emotional reaction uh, of joy or pleasure or maybe revulsion, whatever it might be, but it's the emotions are stimulated physically, which brings up a whole other area, which is has to do with where human emotions are grounded. Are they physical or, or are they immaterial and in the soul? And that's a whole other area with a lot of debate on that that's gone on down through the centuries within Christendom. 
One of the complex things about this is every time you come into an issue, for example, I've mentioned the image of God. Well, how you define Genesis 126 and 27 and the nature of image and likeness is going to impact this. How you interpret, make about 25 different exegetical decisions throughout the scripture, each one's going to domino a different way on how you understand aspects of, of this, this doctrine. Bringing a, a, a communication theory, meaning, all kinds of things. Historically, these have been understood as anthropopathisms. Now, this book, which is nice and large, three inches heavy, good for a paperweight, is a book called Figures of Speech Used in the Bible by E.W. Bullinger. And this book was originally published in 1898. And you never heard of most of what is in here. And I hadn't either, but this was a textbook for Psalms class in Hebrew. And we had to, because the Psalms use lots of figures of speech, so we had to look at these. So you have figures of speech such as ellipsis, aposiopesis, catabasis, enthymema. So you all know about all these. Meiosis, uh, ascenditon, lots of different epistrophe, paradiastole, polysyndeton, anaphorum, lots of different figures of speech. And he classifies all of them. Bullinger is a highly respected, highly respected scholar. And in his section on anthropopathisms, he entitles it Anthropopathia or Condescension, the ascribing of human attributes, etc., to God. Anthropopathia is the Greek word from anthropos, meaning man, and pathos, affections and feelings, and uh, are pascane to suffer. The figure is used of the ascription of human passions, actions, or attributes to God. Well, if they're human passions, actions, and attributes, they're not divine passions, actions, or attributes. He says the Hebrews had a name for this figure and called it Derech B'nai Adam, the way of the sons of man. The Greeks had another name for it. They called it Sun Katabasis, from Sun together with and Kata down and by name to go, going down together with or i.e. God, by using this figure, condescends to the ignorance and infirmity of man. Hence, the Latin name for it was condescensio or condescension. As God is trying to communicate who he is in all of his infinity and all of his grandeur and all of his glory to these little bitty ants who have such a limited, finite range of experience and knowledge. And so he is using things within their experience to, that, to correlate and to help them have some kind of frame of reference in relation to who he is. So we have these different terms that we have to understand. An anthropomorphism from the word anthropos meaning man and morphos meaning or morphe meaning form. It's a figure of speech or language of accommodation whereby human physical features, eyes, ears, nose, face, etc., which God does not actually possess are ascribed to God to communicate within a finite creaturely frame of reference God's policies, plans, and person. So no one has a problem with anthropomorphism because you also have zoomorphisms where uh, God has wings of eagles or other attributes of animals are ascribed to God, and there's a point of comparison. Nobody would dare say that God actually possesses 
those physical features. Other things that are mentioned related to uh, anthropomorphisms, a soul is attributed to God. You have references to God's face in Psalm 1611. Uh, The eyes of God often indicate his knowledge or his providential care of people in Psalm 32.8. Ears are attributed to God in Psalm 1017, Psalm 31.2. Nostrils are attributed to God, Exodus 15.8, Job 4.9, Psalm 18.15. Mouth and lips are attributed to him, Numbers 12.8. And here was one I thought, you know, I never thought of this. The voice of God is an anthropomorphism. Does God have vocal cords? God doesn't have a mouth, and he doesn't have lips, and he doesn't have a tongue. Does God have vocal cords? Does God have a voice box? Does God have a place in his throat that resonates sound so that he can communicate orally? certainly sounds that way when he does, but if he doesn't have a physical body, then he doesn't have a physical voice. That's an anthropomorphism. Bowels are attributed to God. These denote his mercy, his compassion. And all these are various forms of anthropopathia and are figures of metonymy. Metonymy is another technical figure of speech by which one thing is put for another. So these are various terms that are used. Nobody has a problem with that. When you get into anthropopathism now, you have a figure of speech or language of accommodation whereby human emotions such as regret or surprise or remorse or sorrow or happiness, anger, jealousy, which God does not actually possess. See, that's the key parallel between the two. If that phrase is accurate for anthropomorphisms, it's got to be true for anthropopathisms, which God does not actually possess or ascribe to God to communicate within a finite creaturely frame of reference God's policies, plans, and person. Now, another term that's key is the word emotion, which derives from the Latin Latin and French words indicating movement. And that's where you get into a problem. Then the fourth word to define is impassibility. And I'm taking this from an article by uh, Robert Duncan Culver. And he says, among the Greek fathers, that's the early church fathers in the eastern part of the empire, among the Greek fathers, pathos or passion was the right word for the suffering of Christ, as it still is. So in theology, to be impassable means primarily to be incapable of suffering. This was one of the key arguments and the key issues in understanding the hypostatic union. Start pulling at this thread and do away with impassibility, it starts breaking down the hypostatic union and the relationship of Christ to the Father. He says... Now, early theology affirmed that in heaven our resurrected bodies will be apathes, that means insensible to suffering, in this sense. The word came to be extended to mean incapable of emotion of any kind, and beyond that, apathes, impassable, in important theological discourse meant without sexual desire. So you see the term takes on broader and broader meanings, and you really have to decide how each author uses the word. He goes on to say, as applied to God, incapacity for any emotion sometimes is meant. We will return to this. This 12th canon of the Second Council of Constantinople in 553, the Fifth Ecumenical Council, seems to say Christ on earth was impassable in the sense of longings, that is, uh, sexual longings, of the flesh. 
In another dictionary, this shows the confusion on the subject, impassibility is defined as the attribute of God's being unaffected by anything outside of himself. Those who accept the view that God is impassable hold that he cannot be caused to do or feel anything because of his omnipotence and perfection. Critics believe that impassibility would be a barrier to genuine loving relations between God and his creatures. Let's see divine attributes. So this is a... These are just some of the terms. Try to help you understand this a little bit. Culver makes an interesting point. He says that the early church fathers all through the Middle Ages would fight to the death to preserve impassibility. They really understood the significance of this. These guys were some great thinkers in some areas, and they understood how it impacted things. Well, a question people often ask is, does the absence of emotion in God mean that God is cold, detached, impersonal, incapable of relationship, something like a machine or an automaton? No, that's not what this is saying, because there's something on the other side of that analogy. What I'm saying is the terms that we have that describe the human side, feeling and emotion, are terms that we can't apply to the divine side. And historically, they haven't been. Now, we got into this because we're trying to understand this phrase, wrath of God and the anger of God. And so we've gone this way before, and this is basically a figure of speech indicating the harshness of the action of divine justice. It isn't saying God is suddenly finds out about this. He's known about it for eternity. But it is saying that he is acting harshly and strongly in his justice something that might be comparable to how a human being would act if they were treated so disloyally. They would respond in anger and wrath. But God is not responding emotionally. None of us would want an emotional judge. Why would we want to say God's judgments are emotional? Now, that raises another issue, and I'm not saying that one who would say that emotion is in God is saying that God would be emotional. I'm not, I would, I'm not saying that. So that gives us a handle. I want to come back and say a few more things next time. We're out of time. You're probably out of, your, out of brain power because this is just one of those difficult things to try to get your mental fingers around. And if you can't get it around it now, it's just one of those meaty doctrines you set aside and say, well, I'll come back to it later, and eventually I'll get it. I argued with a pastor for four or five years over this, taking the other position. And it wasn't until I started digging through the openness debate that started raising its ugly head in the late 90s, and I looked at some of these uh, figures of speech a little more closely, that I began to realize that maybe these guys who wrote for 15, 16, 1700 years of church history who defended this doctrine with every ounce of their being, might have understood a few things about it that I hadn't quite grasped yet. And so um, uh, if you don't quite grab it, we're not saying God's just a cold machine. You know, there's this thing about modern man wants emotion to be the point of contact for relationship. It's not a relationship if there's no emotion. Well, where do we get that idea? Is that really true? Is that biblical? Well, we'll come back and think a little more about this next time and then get on with our study.
Father, thanks for this opportunity to study these things, to think a little bit more precisely about who you are and your attributes, and understanding that at no point does this challenge or question your uh, true desire to have a relationship with the creatures whom you've created to represent you, created in your image and likeness, and that it does not impact or change or minimize uh, your ability to relate to man, but we're trying to understand and perhaps fathom the unfathomable as best we can. Uh, we pray that as we think about these things that you would help us to have clarity of thought as these are not easy concepts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.